it matters where you are when you read the Bible. Some of you have heard me say that before. Scholars call it dislocating the text. It's the idea that location matters. Most of the time we hear the Bible read in a sanctuary, and you hear it in the word sanctuary. It's a safe place. And even if now you're in your pajamas and on the patio or on the couch, it's in your home. It's a safe place. And so changing location, not just geographical but even social, can make a difference. For instance, if you take the words of Jesus where he says, blessed are the poor, those sound very different in a soup kitchen than they do poolside with a cold beverage in your hand. Dislocating the text. The week before last, my wife and I spent six days down in Texas, and that's where I read Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it was quite a different read. We stopped off in Dallas to see family and friends there, but spent most of the time in Houston, where we grew up, visiting Carol's parents for a milestone anniversary. And it seemed like the perfect place to read Philippians because in this section that we're reading today, Paul's stress is on humility. And Texans are not big on humility. You didn't know that, did you? Well, you learn something new all the time. So I thought, if it's okay, I would brag just a few minutes about Texas. You'll see why as we go. For, for starters, one of the things I would always point out to people is that Texas has so many geographical sections that have different geography and topography from the mountains down in Big Bend to the coast where I grew up near Houston, but also the eastern part with Piney Woods or the hill country with Austin that could give Nashville a run for its money when it comes to live music. And we like to even brag about the fact that these sections are far apart, that you have to load up the pickup, which there are a lot of pickups in Texas in order to get from one to the other. Growing up in Houston, I remember I loved when family or friends would be in town and we would host them and take them to see NASA. And this was during the 60s, the space race. Such pride in that. I mean, we just took ownership, or, or we'd take them on a tour of the Astrodome, which was dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. You know, right alongside the pyramids and the hanging gardens of Babylon. Nothing too prideful about that, right? But maybe being back in Texas, my favorite thing this trip, and something I would always brag about, is the food. There's bluebell ice cream. And in the Houston area, Shipley Donuts, oh my gosh, those things are amazing. And there's Whataburger, which, by the way, is coming to Kansas City, thanks to a certain Texan you might have heard of by the name of Patrick Mahomes. And twice during our visit, Carol and I ate at Lupe Tortilla, which has to have the best steak fajitas I have ever had. Okay, you get the point. Even though I don't really want to move back there, I still have a great deal of pride in that place. Maybe, maybe the Apostle Paul felt that way about Philippi, this city in what is now called Greece. I mean, it's not like he says something about how the hummus there was so much better than over at Colossae or something like that, but of all the places 
where Paul founded churches or wrote to churches, this one, Philippians, was his favorite. No contest. Even in an English reading of the letter, it stands out. He's infatuated with them. Over and over, he uses the word joy more than any other place in his letters. And in the very first few lines of his letter to the Philippians, he says, you know, every time I even think about you, I give thanks to God. For Paul, the people in Philippi were a gift in his life, a gift from God. So it's just a little bit surprising that when you get to this section, things aren't quite right. There's there's trouble. In fact, if you read on in chapter 4, he, he names it specifically. There were two women in the congregation who were feuding, and, and he specifically names them and, and draws attention to them. Now, I say it's surprising, but it's only a little bit surprising because where two or three are gathered, not only does Christ promise to be present, but so do troubles, you know, friction. But when Paul gets to this section and addresses it, begins to address it, he does what he always does. He gives advice. But instead of kind of from on high in this paternal way that you kind of hear in the other letters, it's really more encouraging. This passage begins with a bunch of if statements. But in Greek, it's really since. Paul's not questioning if these things are present. It's like, well, since there's love and since there's compassion and since there's he builds on what they have, and then comes the big ask. The one thing he's after. Regard others as more important. Have, have the same mindset. Practice, in other words, humility. If you stand back from this letter, and you look at all the letters Paul wrote, put them out on the desk, all the scrolls, it's kind of... It's kind of shocking. You know, in the other letters, he tackles the biggest stuff there is. In one of his letters, he says, I know about that guy in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom and how you all know and you've done nothing about it. That's big stuff. Or in another one, he says how the Jews in that congregation were saying to the non-Jews who wished to join, well, okay, we, we can let you in, but the men will need to be circumcised like our men. In other words, they were saying, you've got to give up your identity and your heritage and become something else. And Paul was so ticked off, pretty much up there with that guy sleeping with his stepmom. He also writes a letter, another one, and he says to this slave owner, you know, if you're a Christ follower you might consider letting that slave go, set him free. Wow, these are big things. And then Paul writes about a squabble. I mean, two women who'd gotten in a spat over something. I don't know, maybe other people in the congregation had taken sides. Maybe they had taken to Facebook and were posting against each other. But in the face of a squabble in the church, Paul not only encourages, he rolls out the biggest hymn there is in the New Testament. That's what happens in the latter part of the passage we read. He rolls out the Christ hymn. 
this magnificent piece of poetry that has rhyme and meter and symmetry. And theologians have wrestled with it for years, and there's so many rabbit chases that are so tempting. But Paul's point is to pull back and to say, here, here it is. If the Christ could come down from heaven and live a simple life and practice humility, then so can you. In fact, tradition says that every year on Palm Sunday, this passage should be read as well as those stories of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. You remember, he doesn't sit up tall in the saddle on a white stallion. He comes clip-clopping into town on a donkey. Barbara Brown Taylor says, in the Gospels, you get the story of Jesus' life and ministry and entry, but in Paul's hymn, you get his mindset. What was, what was he thinking? Humility. Humble thoughts. But like most things, humility is a complicated topic. In the history of the church, people have used humility against others, especially women and gays. They've said, you know, don't regard yourself as important. Think of others. Deny yourself. Practice humility and self-denial. But Paul's point is not that we need to grovel before God or before the community. His call for humility is to lead toward unity. Seek some kind of unity. And what he does here is absolutely shocking. I don't know if I can get across how shocking it is. Even in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there were these lists that everybody knew about. Vice and virtue lists. The vices were the things you don't do. The virtues were the things that were held in esteem. And so like lying is wrong and stealing is wrong and loving others is right. And everybody knew this. But there was this one item that society put on the vice list. This is a weakness, and Christianity moved it over as a virtue, humility. It seems to me that now, more than ever, we could use that. I'm a little bit shocked that we could, as a country, debate things like masks. I mean, science. But we have people getting into fights over masks, sometimes with words, but sometimes it comes to blows. And of course, with an election coming, red and blue divisions within families, within churches. And it helps to remember this, this is a purple church, but we all sing from the same hymnal. And this song, this song of Paul's, is the one we should be singing. You know, just tell Alexa, play that Christ hymn, would you? This is our tune. So for six days, my wife and I spent time in Texas. And in between helping her parents with some things that needed to be done there on the property and a couple of rounds of golf, I spent my time reading Paul's letter to the Philippians, specifically this passage, this Christ hymn, and in between, just trying to take in where there's pride and humility. 
the, the first night we went out to eat at Lupe Tortilla with some dear friends. We've known them for 40 years. I was the minister of youth, and their two little girls were two and three at the time. Years later, I would do their weddings, and now they're, they're much older, obviously. And so we went out to eat. We sat on the patio. It was so great to be with them. And then one of the sons-in-law said, so, hey, Mike. I got a question for you. And he started throwing them out. Hot potatoes, you might call them. What do you think about Trump? What's your view on same-sex marriage? You think the Bible's literally true? I mean, they were coming like this. He meant nothing by this. He wasn't trying to cause a fight. He wasn't trying to pick one. He, he said, you're a seminary professor. I just want to know what you thought. As if all seminary professors thought the same thing. One of the daughters she and I have very different views, but we're, we're friends. And so we, we discussed it. I, I, I don't know that I would call it a debate. It certainly wasn't mean-spirited. But I can tell you this. Not for a moment in a situation like that is my first instinct, well, I don't... I don't really know. I'm not sure what I think about that. I mean, I could be wrong. That's not my instinct. And my hunch is it's not yours either. Professors will often answer a question with, I don't know, and then lecture for 30 minutes. Humility is not a common trait. Not with professors, maybe not with any of us. But I am happy to report that while I was scouting out signs of pride and humility, that even down in Texas, I saw humility. At that same dinner, I sidled over to Jerry. He's the dad. There were all kinds of conversations going on, and I wanted to talk to him about NASA. He worked his entire career at NASA as an engineer and on all kinds of important missions, the International Space Station and missions before that. He knew the astronauts. He knew Von Braun. He knew all these people. And he has so many great stories to tell. And he will tell those stories with tremendous energy and love and affection. But never once does he brag about himself. And yet he could. But honestly, the two times that I was really moved by humility, and I don't know if these will make sense to you, were both within my wife's family. I told you about Shipley Donuts. Oh, they're so good. It's worth getting up early to go get them, and that's what I had decided to do. I would get up early, go get some Shipley Donuts, and just as I was about to walk out, there was a box of them on the counter early in the morning, and I knew where they'd come from. My brother-in-law, Steve, works six days a week, night shift, and on his one day off, he mows all that property of my in-laws and tries to take care of things, and he's very unassuming, very quiet. And when he saw me eating, before I could say, thank you for getting the donuts, I was going to go, he said, hey, I'm really sorry they're not warm. You know, they're usually warm. I'm really sorry. It's a sign of humility. And it's the little things that add up to big things. But what moved me most was my father-in-law. Leo studied architecture, became a home builder, a licensed plumber, but he could do it all. 
electrical, tiling, sheetrock, you name it, he could do it. And he taught me all of those skills for which I am forever grateful. But a few years ago, he started losing his eyesight. And nowadays, he's pretty much blind. He can't work, not in construction. He can't work on their property. He sits in his chair, he listens to books on tape, and he battles boredom. Who wouldn't? I mean, let's face it. And at dinner, his wife, my mother-in-law, cuts his meat, tells him that the corn on the cob is on the right side of the plate. Here, here, let me just put your hand there. And it's... It's almost painful to watch. I mean, you could call it humiliating, except if you lean into it, it's really humility. I guess what I'm trying to say is what Paul was saying in poetry and the Gospels in narrative, and that is this. Week before last, down in Texas, I saw Jesus. And he was not riding in a pickup. As always, he was on a donkey. 